0: Matt Hinton is both a filmmaker and a band member of Luxury, and he's come to the antidote. Matt, good to have a chance to speak with you. Likewise, thank you. I always like to start an interview with the roots of a band. Can you give us a brief rundown as to how and when Luxury got together? I can.
1: Um, Some of this will be uh, hearsay, because I wasn't in the band from the very beginning. I didn't join until '99 but i know the information so i can convey it so the the earliest days of the band it's made up of two brothers uh jamie and lee Bozeman, so they already knew each other uh and then bass player chris foley and drummer glenn black they all wound up for various reasons wound up at a small christian liberal arts college in in northeast georgia in a town called Tokoa And it was a pretty conservative uh, environment. And um, one that they didn't necessarily, I think it was a bit of a culture shock for them uh, to be in that type of environment where there was sort of a presumption that people weren't listening to secular music, for example. and <laughs> uh, And that was not really their experience. So these four dudes who really did not have a lot in common musically um because they were in the environment that they were in and we're talking in sort of 92 or 93 thereabouts um they show up to the school at various times and you got one guy the singer lee who was you know into stuff like the smiths and depeche mode that kind of stuff and a fairly narrow taste actually but that were along those lines. And then you had this drummer, Glenn, who, in a notable way, was into things like Kiss and Led Zeppelin and heavy metal and that type of stuff. Like, those two guys do not belong in a band together. Like, there's no way that you would say, like, a Morrissey fan belongs in a band with a Kiss fan. (laughs) So... Then you've got Chris, the bass player, who is into hardcore punk bands, particularly uh, stuff like Minor Threat and Fugazi and uh, Rites of Spring and stuff like that. Largely sort of DC punk kind of stuff was where he was at. He had played in punk bands throughout high school and um, uh, was not into metal and was not into the Smiths. And so he was doing his own thing. And then Jamie, the other guitar player, was sort of more of a college rock guy, I would say, kind of U2 and and that kind of stuff, had some overlap with his brother Lee. But in any event, it just goes to show being in a environment like that, it's like you're looking for anything. In those days, as Chris mentioned, you're looking for anybody with a band t-shirt or a or wearing Doc Martens or something like that, back in, a, in the era of when what you wore actually conveyed something about, about who you were. In a way, that's probably strange to younger people these days, but it was very much the case in the 80s and early 90s. So, um, you know, if they wanted to play music, they kind of said to each other, it's either going to be us or nobody. So that was sort of how it, how it started.
0: Then it makes me really curious, what did the Christian College think about what this band was doing?
1: Yeah, they were not in love with
0: what they were doing.
1: Um, as I understand, they got kicked off of campus, like in terms of they would like rehearse in empty rooms here and there, got kicked off campus, and um, wound up going and forming a venue, which wound up being a place that they could rehearse, but they created a venue in the in the small town. Um that was sort of designed to draw both kind of local kind of towny kids on one hand who hadn't really heard that kind of music before but also was sort of bringing those people together with with the kids at the school who certainly hadn't heard that kind of music before because it was yeah it was not the kind of christian rock stuff Evidently, the school sort of tried to shut them down, but they had to remind the school that it was off-campus and they had, had nothing to do with it. So, I think it was a sort of a tense relationship, to put it mildly.
0: Well, that's the point, because here we are, we have luxury with Christian members, but the band never wanted to be labeled as being Christian. What was the aversion? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, I guess,
1: I don't even think it was an aversion as such, at this point it's a complete cliche to say, well, we're Christians but it's not a Christian band. But if you just listen deeply at all, like you see that, that that there is at least to some degree an agenda in that band. Even if it's just like thanking God in the in the liner notes or whatever, there's something there. There's like a tip off there. With luxury there wasn't that at all. And I think that it was just like that was not um, like Lee's the vocalist and writer of the lyrics, and I think that he that it just didn't even occur to him, really, to use his lyrics, certainly not in an evangelistic way, but not even in a way where he was processing spiritual or theological concerns. It was more sort of emotional stuff that was being dealt with and stories that were being told, I think, particularly on the first record there was something that, an event that occurred that caused him to be maybe a little bit more reflective uh, and contemplative in his lyrics after that first record. But certainly in the first record, originally the band was called The Shroud before they were luxury. So they released a couple of Shroud records.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I mean, there were tapes that were being passed around or whatever, and those were reflective of the first luxury record. So I think that's part of like what's, maybe worth noting is that that the first luxury record was really kind of like the third or fourth like they'd been through it a few times not on labels or anything like that but they had and there was a couple of songs from that shroud material that wound up on the first luxury record so anyway for those first few records there wasn't like i defy anybody to look at that first luxury record and find the sort of Christian content to it. But again, not like in a defiant way, but in just like a, no, that's just not what I'm interested in writing about uh, for whatever reason. It wasn't because he wasn't serious about his faith or anything like that. I would say historically, I would say that this band has been, as individuals have been far more serious about their faith than most Christian bands that I've interacted with. Anyway, it's just, I think everybody was coming from... uh, I mean, certainly in the case of Chris, was not coming from, like, in high school, was not coming out of, like, a Christian scene. He was involved in the sort of general punk scene. And, you know, his goal was, like, to have luxury playing in the kinds of clubs that he was used to playing in high school, which were not Christian venues at all. And that was exactly what happened. Mainly, luxury played in regular venues. And it was only after a while that... um, You know, when you have Christian friends who are maybe opening a venue or something like that, you wind up playing that venue, and then you begin to have a reputation of being a Christian band or something, even if it was not intended.
0: I get that. But of course, it was the Christian scene where luxury got its big break by going to Cornerstone in 94. Yeah. Because that festival is really the center of alternative Christian music at that point in time.
1: Yeah, for sure. No, you're right. It's not. It's a little bit cagey or a little bit sneaky to say that it wasn't, like, there was no, um, I mean, I think that they didn't want that, but it was sort of a last-ditch effort at the time. Luxury was seeing other bands getting deals and kind of like, what, it's like, why are we not, what's going on? Like, what's the problem? And I think, like, wanted to do this, like, this is like the goal for life kind of thing. In this case, it was that band, Prayer Chain, who said, hey, y'all should come up and play, and we'll sort of sneak y'all in, more or less, call y'all our roadies, <laughs> and, uh, and y'all play on that, like an impromptu stage. And uh, no, they're a bunch of cool people, and people would really like y'all up there, and it'd you know, be a good opportunity, and so forth. Luxury did not go up to get signed, but the offer was made, and so then like, you're at the crossroads. That was a sort of a critical moment for the band, where they made one choice instead of another. You know, who among us can say what would have happened had they not accepted the offer that was made to them by tooth and nail? Uh, but they did, and and you also you have to understand that tooth and nail at that point. You know, they, in part, we're talking about this film and about luxury, and in the film. There's a sense in which maybe Tooth and Nail could come off as kind of like, not the bad guy exactly, but almost a deal with the devil kind of a situation. Uh, I mean, inevitably, that's just how kind of narratives work, I think. But I think the reality is that, you know, they were just doing their thing and they were a bunch of kids slightly older than the guys in Luxury. So they were making it up as they went. They had only released just a handful of of albums at that point. And Luxury had seen the first Starflyer 59 record, which looked cool, like it had like a silver, like shiny silver cover, which was sort of a bold kind of thing at the time, especially. And it seemed like the first kind of record in that Christian market that felt very contemporary. Like it felt like the alternative music that was really happening at the time. There were there were hints of a lot of like shoegazy kind of thing, a little bit of like um, the first Smashing Pumpkins. Like you could hear that in there, but then it was like the sort of breathy vocals that was more typical of sort of English four AD type stuff. And so we were hearing all of the reference points that made sense to us, and it's like, oh well, if they'll sign that kind of band who didn't really at the time didn't really seem like a Christian band particularly. And the way that they were posturing themselves at the time was, yeah, we're not really trying to be a Christian band, but we are drawing from this crowd because we see that there's a lot of, of talented bands that we wouldn't want to miss out on. But, you know, we have every intention of getting you into regular record stores and in regular press, like, you know, magnet or, you know, those kinds of regular music magazines. Um, and I don't think they were being deceptive. I think that's exactly what they wanted to do and were attempting to do. But Brandon, the guy that owned Tooth and Nail, you know, his background was in the Christian scene. And so he's going to, you know, naturally going to fall back on his experience and the contacts that he had, which happened to involve Christian distribution. And so the records wound up in Christian bookstores. And I mean, it's all it's all kind of muddy and it's, it's not quite right to say that Luxury deliberately signed with a Christian label because it wasn't clear to Luxury nor I think to Brandon exactly what that label was going to be and what they were going to be about like I think he was you know doing his best and and uh I personally have no gripe with that at all anyway so does that answer your question
0: It uh, does a little bit yeah It's surprising too because I guess for Christians, these song topics from Luxury could be a surprise because, you know, they would do things like exploring sexuality. Right. Which was just something that, you know, any type of a Christian artist would normally not do. Particularly in the early 90s. Yeah. The band must have taken flack for that.
1: Yeah, there was some stuff, but, you know, like, I mean, part of it is that because a lot of the shows were not in Christian venues, it wasn't that big of a thing or people would try to interpret songs differently. Like the song, uh, touch where the chorus is, I'm going to touch him, touch him. I'll be kind. Uh, people said, Oh, well that means he wants to touch God, whatever that even means. So they would interpret it. I guess they thought they were interpreting it charitably. Um, and just got it wrong completely. Though Lee suggests that he didn't really consider sort of sexual connotation to that, he just meant it was just some, a guy he wanted to fight was the context of that. So maybe there was some of that, but I know, I mean, I don't think I've ever met anybody who cares less about uh, any kind of pushback along those lines than Lee. Even though he was not the quote the punk one in the band, has more of a punk attitude. Really, more than kind of anyone I've ever met, probably.
0: Let's hear more about Lee because he has this amazing rock star stage persona, but at the same time, he has this reserved intensity that's intimidating. I'd like to hear your yeah. thoughts, Matt. Like, does one of those sides dominate Lee? He doesn't intimidate me. <laughs> that's a good thing as a bandmate.
1: <laughs> uh, so, which side dominates? Well, I mean, in in person, I would not call him an outgoing person. Particularly, he's uh, very reserved, very thoughtful, and a very practical person. Very unlike, yeah, what I guess is like a persona uh, when he performs or performed. We haven't performed in a while, so yeah. I mean, it's like he just sort of puts on a new, a different. You know, it comes out in flashes every so often, like in, with him personally. But uh, And when we're playing music together, it'll come out. But um, personally, no, he's very reserved. You know, you hear that all the time about performers. Oh, well, I'm really shy or whatever, and sometimes it's hard to believe them. But it certainly is the case with Lee. I don't know if shyness is the word for it, but yeah, it's very reserved.
0: It's funny how you brought up that punk aspect, and I've even heard people describe luxury as a punk band. That's the last label I would ever put onto the music.
1: Yeah, right. Well, I would say that there's that influence in there, and I would say that um, it comes across in a live context vastly more than it does on record. And, And certainly it would be more of a tradition of sort of brash, snotty kind of punk along the lines of the Buzzcocks or something like that. that Okay. Mm -hmm. They're a little bit more than like Black Flag or something. So it's definitely got a punk spirit in there. But no, I would never, if somebody asked me what the band was, I would never say it was a punk band.
0: During the 90s era of luxury that's the time where song topics sometimes could be considered maybe confrontational or controversial. Do you think that the band was actually setting out to push people's buttons?
1: Um, To a degree, yeah. I mean, Lee in particular, I think. uh, I think he would come up to a line and most people, when they realized that they had gotten to that line, would probably take a step back from the line. And he's more likely to, to step over it and think that that was pretty funny (laughs) um, to sort of get a rise out of people. Like it was all about provocation, not only lyrically, but in terms of performance. Um, Sometimes it felt like he and the band in general, um, and certainly by my time in the band, like still felt this way that there was a sense in which we were performing against the audience almost as much as performing for the audience. I don't know if that makes any sense, but...
0: That's an interesting viewpoint. I never would have thought about a band doing that.
1: Right, with the goal of winning them over, but every so often you'd wind up in a context where people were kind of skeptical or appeared to be or not interested, and it's like... I don't want to say they're the enemy at that point, but it's... um, I don't know how to describe it, but um, yeah, real provocation, real like making the audience uncomfortable, which Lee was very good at. I think that the idea was like better to be hated than to be ignored or found boring or, or whatever. And um, so there's a lot of like that button pushing, but at the same time, you know, like Lee was like in his bones was really into like these sort of pretty pop songs. And like, you know, beautiful melodies and stuff like that. That was what he loved. And so that stuff always sort of poked through as well. There was always something winsome in it. Even though, like, when you saw them, it's like, I can't figure this guy out. Like, what's he about?
0: You know, I brought up this point with other artists. People expect to hear safe music coming from an artist with a Christian faith. Right. Should music be safe?
1: Uh, No. I mean... No, I don't, I think that's really bad. I mean, I think that there's a reason for it and I don't think that like there's an enemy in this, but I think that the way that I've perceived it is that the very beginnings and growth of the Christian music industry was precisely about safety. Even though the the artists themselves may not have been as concerned with that or that wasn't there, primary motive i think that as an industry that that was precisely what caused its growth and what i mean by that is this in the beginning in the late 70s early 80s you started to have and especially by the time of in america in the time of like tipper gore who created the this uh parents was it called parents music resource center or something like that which started like putting labels like these parental warning labels on records that came from a place of like you know keeping kids safe because what was also going on in the background was like yes on one hand it's sort of concerns about like sexual lyrical content and that kind of thing but also you have to remember the 80s was like the heyday of the so-called satanic panic and people these days, I don't know what it was like in Canada, but in the States, kids who are younger than, you know, maybe 35, like, have no context for this at all. But the idea that on the national news, there would be these stories of, of you know, satanic cults, like, stealing kids away and rituals and all this kind of stuff, between that and the idea of people putting razor blades and apples at uh, Halloween... You just had all these, like, things that freaked everybody out, and I think that one of the results of that was that it's like, well, we've got to find, like, some kind of way of keeping our kids safe, and so the Christian music industry became, like, a way of selling itself along those lines, that here we are in a Christian bookstore, and so there's, like, a, a tacit sense among parents, who may not even be, like, strong, you know, believing kind of Christian-type folks— but they may say, "Well, all I know is I don't want them listening to, you know, Ozzy Osbourne or whatever it was at the time." And so, you know, they make these deals where, "Okay, kids, we'll take you over here, and you can buy anything in this store," because there was this tacit assumption that 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 material was being vetted, uh, vetted for content and vetted for sort of safety, as it were, and that that was the instinct. I think that every generation has its thing, like. When I was making my movie, I was sort of interested and it's like, well, I hadn't heard about Satanism that much in the nightly news anymore. What happened to that? And um, so I, I have a subscription to a newspaper website that has created a database of newspapers from the past 150 years or so, back into the 1800s. And so I searched the words "satanic" and "satanism" and these kinds of things, and from the entire history, and it will show you a graph of the use of those words hmm. because it's searchable. The use of those words over time, and so it's a like a timeline where you can see like where it was most used, and basically it wasn't used at all until around the maybe a, like a blip in the late 60s and then into the 70s a little bit more. And then in the 1980s, oh my goodness, just skyrockets. Just goes like off the charts how often those words are used. And then between 2000 and 2010, it's like back to nothing again. It's really interesting, just like from a like cultural point of view, it's really interesting how that's no longer a thing that people are scared of in a real sense. It's like, you know, when I was a kid, everybody was scared of quicksand for some reason. I've never been around (laughs) quicksand. Like, what's that? (laughs) Women were afraid of ring around the collar. Like, there would be, like, these weird sort of things in the 1970s or 80s or whenever it is that people are scared of. Now it's, you know, who knows what it is. It's, um, you know, among, like, anti-vaxxers. It's that. It's like... People are always wanting to, wanting to keep their kids safe. It comes from a good impulse. Um, but then when it gets either organized or turns into a, an industry or something, it like it takes on these different kinds of shades that, like, I don't know. Like I, I mean, certainly, like, I trust that anti-vaxxers, I don't know anything about vaccines, like, honestly. I mean, I assume that doctors are probably right about it. But I absolutely understand the impulse of wanting to keep your kids safe. Like if there's some idea that you're allowing somebody to inject something that's going to that's going to do harm to your child, I totally get that concern. Totally understand that. And similarly, I understand why parents in those days, if what they're saying is like satanic cults and, you know, heavy metal is behind it all or whatever in the nineteen eighties. I can absolutely see why Parents would say, "You know what? Like, I'm not going to study every album. Let's just let them get the r- records at Christian bookstores." So you have this set up, this sort of agreement set up between the parents and the and the uh, Christian bookstores that the stuff in there is safe. And then the next thing you know, like it's not Satanism, but next thing you know, luxury shows up, and the first <laughs> the first uh, song on the first record is about a transgender kid. Without him dying in the end or repenting in the end, it not because Lee didn't have a point of view, but because he didn't express the point I mean he just he just made it a song with a question mark in it, which is what art does sometimes, like it leaves you in a place that you don't know what to think in these days, it wouldn't be super controversial i mean it'd be well in Christian culture it'd still be fairly controversial, but in those days. It's like not even a category for it. That's not something that even even secular artists were talking about.
0: That was it's, being way ahead of the curve.
1: Yeah, I would say so. So is it, is it the responsibility of a Christian artist to be safe for children? I would say no. Like I would say that certainly the the Bible is full of stories that, that you wouldn't necessarily want your kids to read uh, for a variety of reasons. Or that you would be concerned about it. But I feel like, boy, we really need to talk about this. This isn't like something that you go into without some serious thought about. But it's like you know, like all of life isn't you know isn't safe, and so yeah, I think it's good for there to be some exposure there. And and if parents are concerned about what their kids are listening to, I have kids now, and I'm I'm actually like more than you would think. I'm more circumspect about the music that my kids listen to. I don't want them to be influenced in certain kind of ways. Now, some of it doesn't have anything to do with some of the things we're talking about. But, you know, I don't want them to learn um, to objectify their, like, I don't want my daughters to objectify themselves by being influenced by some pop star who is, you know, sort of immodest or what have you. Like, those, those are things that are concerning to me. So I get the impulse behind it. But that's, you know, that's the role of the parent, not the artist.
0: Well, why don't we lighten things up a bit, and I'll give you a really easy question. Sweet. How did you become a member of Luxury?
1: Uh, I was around. I mean, basically. was all. (laughs) You were just available,
0: but you weren't on Craigslist.
1: No, no. No, this is before Craigslist anyway. But, you know, I played in a band uh, called Piltdown Man, and my band uh, played with Luxury a good bit. If there was such a thing as two bands being best friends, that would have been, that would have been true of us. And uh, I mean, so much so that every so often when one of us, one of our bands had a, a concert, like a show booked that eventually turned out we couldn't honor, like that one of the bands couldn't honor, uh, we would offer that slot to the other band. Now, if the other band couldn't do it, then those members of both bands who were available... Would create a third band that we called Metropolitan, and Metropolitan was like a shape shifting uh, various members of these two bands together. Uh, and so we some of the songs on that first luxury record actually came out of Metropolitan stuff that that we had done, and you know Lee being and Metropolitan sort of formed that anyway. We had sort of that type of relationship and when the third album was recorded and I had I had played a little bit on the second record and on the third record just sort of visiting the studio and they would hand me the guitar and, and I would play something. But by the third record a lot of the music became more involved and there was sort of a, a thought that, that A, it would be good to be able to do some of the stuff on this recording that wouldn't be able to pull off without another guitar player. And Lee, I think, felt inhibited a little bit by having to play guitar throughout songs he liked the idea of being able to sort of sling the guitar down and and play without the guitar sometimes so for performance purposes it was uh expedient to have another guitar player come in and uh so i was i think that I was just sort of in the right place and the most obvious person around so yeah
0: Interesting that you brought up the point about the band name Metropolitan because that's also a song from Luxury on The Latest and The Greatest.
1: Is that the connection? Uh, I I think that Lee named that song, uh, which he hates, by the way. That's, I think, his least favorite song. (laughs) But um, uh, I think that, yeah, that that came after uh, we had that band name. I think that it was somewhere... uh, I mean, part of it is that I lived on a street in Atlanta called Metropolitan, and I think that that was probably the direct influence. And there may have been something in a Whit Stillman film called Metropolitan that that might have influenced it as well. I don't recall, but yeah.
0: Now I've been neglecting your documentary about luxury. And yeah, the website gives this synopsis: Parallel Love, the story of a band called Luxury follows the path of luxury, a band from small-town Georgia, who on the cusp of success, suffer a devastating touring wreck with long-term consequences. In the intervening years, they continue to make records, and three members of the band become Eastern Orthodox priests. If you took that premise to Hollywood, they'd laugh and tell you it wasn't a believable story.
1: Right, right. Yep, it's a weird one. I mean, which is why, you know, like I never would have made a movie about my own band. That's a really lame thing to do because it feels so sort of self-promotional and what have you. But um, when we were uh, making the most recent record, well, it was the first time that we had made an album uh, with Three Priests. And, um, and I just had, oh, this seems like I'm sure that this is interesting. And I would made a movie before. A documentary about sacred harp singing, so I sort of knew how to make a movie, and I said, "Hey, fellas, do y'all mind if I like have a guy come and like document the recording of this album and um, and the writing process and all of this?" and And they said, "Yeah, I think not really believing that it would like anything would come of it." And um, over time, it just became more and more obvious that I really was going to do it. But I did it, I mean, truly, just because I thought it was an interesting story. So, yeah, I mean, I think it is. I still think it's an interesting story.
0: How was it that you got involved with film in the first place?
1: Uh, well, I mean, it was another situation where it seemed like something that there should be a movie and nobody else was jumping up to do it. So About I figured I-
0: Sacred Harp.
1: Yeah, yeah, so... Uh, Sacred harp singing for your listeners is early American uh, shape note hymn singing, which is the earliest sort of distinctively American as in like Anglo American music, um, uh, or at least it's descended from that uh, would be a bit clearer way of putting it. But it, um, so it was the kind of music that was sung in churches as they were sort of moving away from the more typically English way of doing it, there was, in the 1700s, there was a sort of a revolutionary spirit, as we know. And um, even in the area of music, they decided, well, let's do something distinctively American. So point is that over time, this music completely died out, other than in Georgia and Alabama, pretty much. Little pockets of Texas, little pockets of Mississippi, little pockets of Florida. But probably 90% of all of the people who sung this kind of music in the entire world lived in the states of Georgia and Alabama, which were not necessarily known generally to be places where cultural artifacts could be found necessarily. Like this like thing that you would think would have been kept up with and understood by the academies and by you know universities but even like music professors and music historians didn't really know about it so that to me seemed like an interesting story in 91 i went to my first sacred harp singing and at the time i had a strong sense that like are these the only people like this is in georgia so are these the only people in the world that are doing this it just seemed so foreign and so interesting to me so anyway Ultimately, my wife and I made that film to sort of expose, you know, that very interesting tradition that to me, it seemed like obvious that people would be interested in it, um, just even from just a historical slash cultural perspective. So, so, yeah, we did that, and it wound up airing on American public television a few years back. So, I, my instincts were right, that people were interested in it, and so... Because of that, I felt like, well, maybe my instincts will be right about
0: this as well. Well, that just raises that point then. Parallel Love can't be aimed just at luxury fans. So who comes to the screenings? Uh,
1: So the screenings that I've been to, it's been a a fairly broad swath of folks. Um, I think that there's sort of this general crowd that are either Uh, luxury fans or broadly kind of people who are aware of Christian rock music and that they found something interesting about it enough to come out. So that on one hand, then you had sort of general kind of rock and roll people who were interested in it as a story because they saw the trailer or something. And uh, then there are Orthodox people, right? who maybe have no interest at all in like Christian rock music or whatever but are Eastern Orthodox and see that it's a story about Eastern Orthodox priests. And then there are the the sort of broader swath of people who are just interested in a good story. And uh, so those are the types that we saw. But I was very deliberate about not making a movie for luxury fans. That was That had to be the last concern on my mind, because those people were going to like it anyway. So I had to be more interested in... And like, okay, somebody who didn't know anything about this band, what would be compelling? That was the aim.
0: Since you've been through both experiences, maybe you can tell us, are there similarities between recording an album and creating a film?
1: Uh, There are some similarities. Um, It depends on how you're making the film. In my case, I was doing 90% of the work. And so is more kind of my vision for it than in a band context where it's more collaborative. And in our case, like if Lee doesn't like something, it's just not going to happen. Even though we're fairly democratic, if there is a band leader, then it's Lee. Um, but generally, making a record is quite collaborative. People are writing their own parts and so on, and um, and there can be times where you're um, you know, disagreeing with each other or pushing against each other and, like, you know, with the intent being to make the record better. So in my case, making this film, I didn't necessarily have, like, it wasn't collaborative in that way. Though I certainly was showing it to people and having other editors come and work on it some and that kind of thing um, to make sure that there were some other eyes on it because, you know, you can't really trust yourself like that. But all of that being set aside it's so much more difficult to make a movie. It's not even funny. Like, it's ridiculous. Especially like like a feature-length documentary. It's so much more complicated because there are just so many more aspects to it. Uh, it's not easy to tell a story and have it be interesting at the same time. And to be concerned with the visual side of it as well as the audio And not just the technical side, but the actual content of what's being said. What's the most efficient way of telling the story? And how do you tell the story when, after all, all you're using is, are these interviews of other people saying stuff that, like, well, you can sort of try to push it in the direction you want it to go, but ultimately you're using other people's words to make whatever larger point you're trying to make. So sometimes I tell people it's like writing a a very long essay uh, using only quotes from other people that you copy and paste together, but to make a, something that's foundationally fundamentally different than the single point that any of them were making.
0: It sounds like this was a huge trial, but you came into this project with eyes wide open because you'd already had your first documentary out.
1: Uh, yeah, sort of. Um, as much as a a woman who is pregnant for the second time goes into that, like, there, I think that there's, like, some sort of amnesia that occurs uh, where after you've given birth one time, at that moment you're saying, never again, I'll never do this again. And then, like, thankfully, after a little while, you kind of forget about the pain, and then you can have another kid. <laughs> Similarly, uh, you know, like, it had been a while since I'd made a movie, and I thought, okay, well, I know how to do it now. I'll be able to to finish it in about, you know, six or seven months, something like that, which wound up being a complete joke. It was closer to, you know, a year and a half or so.
0: The first Luxury album you were a part of, Matt, didn't come out until 2005. That was 10 years after Luxury's debut album. How did Health & Sport compare to that debut? Uh,
1: well, it was different in a variety of ways. It was a more serious record, by far. Uh, The first record, there was a lot of humor in it. It didn't take itself real seriously. Health and Sport is serious, and it sounds serious, if that makes sense. I think it has maybe more artistic pretensions about it than the first record did. Uh, First record was sort of fun and games and was was born out of the live experience. It was sort of, here's a song, let's play this at the next show. And that develops and develops and winds up going on to the first record. But with Health and Sport, it was primarily stuff that had not been tested live and was more of a studio-type project. Um, And it was the first time that we truly produced ourselves. Mainly it was Jamie at the helm. And doing most of the production work there, recorded in an attic in a, upstairs of a place in downtown Tacoa, Georgia, in the middle of summer. So it was like a miserable experience, the actual recording of it. Um, and it was just all kinds of weird things that we were doing, but uh, in some ways, a noisier record, like a lot of sort of experimental type stuff going on with it, um, but then other stuff that was like very recognizable. Uh, as luxury uh, that you got to know on the first record. So, yeah, I mean, definitely, like, there were some themes on this record that were, I don't want to call it a midlife crisis record. It wasn't really that, but it was kind of a identity crisis record, I think. Um, I mean, in Lee's life, he had found himself doing a job that didn't make any sense for him to be doing, that uh, involved him traveling some and so forth and um, made him reflect in a way that was kind of different than he had done previously. For the record, whereas uh, Metropolitan is, I think, Lee's least favorite song, Health and Sport, as a record, I'm pretty sure is Lee's favorite, uh, favorite record by Luxury. And it's certainly, I really like it a lot as well. It's it didn't get distributed as widely as as we had hoped, but uh, but it's a good one.
0: That's a fabulous album. I adore that one.
1: Cool. Yeah, yeah, I do too.
0: A few years back, I kept hearing news of a new luxury album, but I was never able to track it down. Then, in 2019, Trophies was released to the public. So you kept it under wraps like all those years.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems sort of goofy now, but the idea was um, when we made that record, so the way that we made it was totally independently and by uh, doing a Kickstarter campaign and so crowdsourcing the funds to make it. So we made it, and, and of course I was documenting the making of that record, which winds up being kind of the third act of, of the film, of Parallel Love. So it seemed to us like it would make sense from a, like we've never been very like savvy from a marketing point of view to us that, well, like now maybe a good time if we're going to put this energy into this stuff, we may as well like do it as well as we can. And so what we decided was that it'd be a good idea to release the album and the film at more or less the same time. And and again, remember, I had told them that it would only take me you know, a few months to make it. And so after probably a year or so, the guys were starting to get antsy. I was feeling guilty that I was like holding off the release of that record. And um, But then again, at that point, it's like, well, we've waited this long. We may as well just wait until it's out. So yeah, that's what that was about. And the way that you heard about it in the first place is because we had an obligation to the Kickstarter supporters to um, release it to them. So we'd send them copies of it or whatever. And so there was like this a group of people that heard it in whenever it was, 2017 or whatever, um, but that we didn't actually release it until this past year. If it was a great idea retrospectively, but that was the purpose.
0: Something about Trophies that I find interesting is that many of the songs like Parallel Love, Trophies, and Don't Feel Bad If You Don't Feel Better Right Away, they all speak about looking at the past. So is this age-related?
1: Uh, I mean, you have to ask Lee, but I, yeah, I mean, I think so. I think that probably, you know, when you haven't made an album in a while, and now you're a priest, and like it starts to your identity starts to get sort of mixed up a little bit and um, or you sort of start to question, like, how did I get here? Which inevitably causes you to look back and sort of retrace your steps somewhat. I mean, one of the lines in Trophies is, and it comes up a few places, like clothing, I don't know if you noticed this theme, but him talking about clothing comes up a few times on the record. I remember talking to him about it. He said that that whereas and I had mentioned this a, a while back but in the in the 80s it was the case that you pretty much knew what a person was like based on how they dressed, particularly if they were sort of more kind of alternative in a way. If they were wearing, you know, a band t-shirt or whatever it was, like that signified something. A girl wearing um a skirt and combat boots. These days, you wouldn't blink your eye at that. But in the 1980s, it's like, oh, what's going on here? What is this? Who's she? Like, that's that's interesting. And, um, but what he realized that that was the case when he was growing up in the 80s, like in high school in the 80s. Um, but now, as a priest, this is the first time he's been in a situation in a while where the way that he dresses communicate something about identity. And that, to me, is pretty interesting as well, in addition to the sort of retrospective turn that the lyrics have taken.
0: I think you sort of half-raised this point. Has there ever been one of those what-if moments for luxury? You know, like, what if the accident didn't happen? What if we didn't go into the priesthood? What if the band had gone to the top of the music scene?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and I think that different guys in the band address that question kind of differently in a way. When I was interviewing them, I um, asked everyone if they had it to do over again, would they uh, have the wreck occur? I mean, on one hand, it was like, duh, of course not. But it's not obvious uh, that that's the case. Like, if you're able to see a line in your life of causation then maybe enough positive came out of it to make it worth it. Uh, Jamie, for example, is pretty clear about the idea that he does not think that he would have gone on to be a priest had it not been for the wreck. Wow. Um, And therefore, he would absolutely have it happen again. Lee, uh, I think, doesn't really think that way as much. Um, He didn't have very much fun during or after the wreck so i think that he's hesitant to wish that upon himself again but because um, that was that was a tough period for him for sure though did it lead to him being a priest you know who could say that like it's a, a chain of causation that would be difficult to to sort out yeah so that would be a, one of those occasions that is um a moment of a what if moment as you put it like what if that didn't happen what would have happened yeah it's hard to know like how much promotion how much could luxury have ever made it in the christian scene uh under the best circumstances um it's clear enough that luxury did not make it and uh so if luxury hadn't signed to tooth and nail what would have happened well Like, on one hand, it's very possible that Luxury would have done another self-released kind of CD, and then that would have been it. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that they might have signed to a a bigger and and better label and, and might have become something bigger than the band became. So it's really hard to know. I mean, particularly among the priests, I don't think that there's any of them who are the least bit dissatisfied with the way that things turned out in that regard. I think that they're content being priests and that they understand that to be their, you know, true vocation. And it's not obvious if the band became really big that that would have happened eventually. You know, humanly speaking, it's hard to know. So, in that sense, it's a a happy ending.
0: And what about down the road? Is there a future for luxury?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that this. that the experience of this last record, and particularly the film, uh, has sort of awoken uh, an interest in the band. And, um, well, both in the band from other people as well as within the band uh, in continuing. So uh, we have every intention of making another record probably this year. And um, we've gotten together once to rehearse and write new songs. And, you know, they're good. Like, it's going to be like this record will be at least as good as Trophy probably better. And um, though we've got a good bit of, you know, a way to go ahead of us. We haven't recorded anything yet. Uh, we're going to need to figure out where the money's coming from on that for sure. Uh, and then secondarily, we're, we were asked to play a festival in Birmingham in September, and uh somehow we agreed to do that, so we're <laughs> we have a well, it's you know there are three of us who are always game, always up for playing a show, and then a couple of us are less susceptible to the charms of that and um but somehow they caught us on a good day, so we'll be playing in September uh in Birmingham, Alabama, and there may be one or two other shows that occur around that time as well so we'll see what comes of it
0: cool matt hinton director of the documentary parallel love the story of a band called luxury and guitarist for the band has been with the antidote for a talk matt thanks for everything that you do thank you